0: It's one thing to get your next player sniped by a competitor, but it really hurts when that competitor is using your draft projections. We'll ask Todd Zola all about it next on Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Swung on, high fly ball. The left center should do it. There's Foster, and the 1976 World Championship belongs to the Cincinnati Reds. In the ninth inning, the Yankees are out in order as the Reds, in this fourth game... In sweeping, Billy Martin's New York Yankees do it decisively, four in the ninth inning and a 7-2 final score. Learn to play the winner's way, because
2: Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt.
0: And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 3rd. It's show number 14 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great show for you. In just a few minutes, we'll talk with Todd Zola about getting sniped by his own projections, NFBC strategies, tactics, that crazy draft he was in, stolen base specialists, and more. We'll also have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with Jock Thompson. And in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler talks about the harsh realities of the fantasy baseball demographic. It's another Big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Opening day's just a couple of hours away. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report, and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
1: Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here.
0: The first news we should talk about, a late uh, development. Trevor Cahill, who had just been announced as having made the Arizona Diamondbacks rotation, is on the move. He'll be pitching in Atlanta.
1: Yeah, headed to Atlanta. Probably bumping Eric Stoltz out of the rotation initially. Trevor Cahill is not a great pitcher. Let's put it that way. Last season, a 5.61 ERA, three wins, 12 losses, 112 innings pitched—a uh, really dreadful season. Uh, he can't help but do do a bit better than that. But uh, uh, certainly, getting out of the uh, out of the Diamondbacks' launching pad will probably help him. Uh, things should be a bit better for him in Atlanta. Uh, and hopefully we'll have a chance to improve a bit on what he did last season. But I don't think he's anyone anyone's going to jump on in terms of uh, uh, of uh, their their roster.
0: This is the kind of guy Nick who reminds me Trevor Cahill of a lot of pitchers who, at the end of drafts, if you're not prepared with a list of names you want for those one and two dollar slots, you see the name Trevor Cahill and you think I know that name. I've heard of that guy, and therefore you end up with him on your roster at a buck. Uh, because you just lack alternatives, and it's really important to have alternatives because Trevor Cahill, you do not want on your roster, I think, really under any circumstances.
1: No, I think you don't. If you look at the projections for him for this year, they're they're really very bad. We're projecting him to be a minus $13 ball player.
0: Uh, minus $9 in 5 by 5 because he does offer you a few strikeouts, I guess. But, yeah, this is, uh, this is a situation where... Uh, Every major league team, especially the ones who are kind of floundering around as the Braves are, has to have guys like this on its roster. But even in a very deep uh, National League league, uh, if you're rostering Trevor Cahill, there's a fairly decent chance you're making an error and costing yourself a lot of ground in the pitching categories. Now, uh, with... Cahill out of the Diamondbacks' rotation. Somebody has to draw into the Diamondbacks' rotation, and I'm, of course, I want to know: Does this mean that Archie Bradley, the prize rookie, has landed a rotation spot?
1: Yes, it seems to early. Early word out of uh, Arizona seems to indicate that Archie Bradley will be in the rotation to start the season, and of course, uh, everyone's been waiting for Archie Bradley to come up and look at this uh, and see how he does. But you know, you've got to remember: this guy is 22 years old, a very high ceiling. But uh, as with all young pitchers, don't expect him to, to be a, uh, a Cy Young winner right away. I mean, uh, here's a guy that's got a lot of learning to do on the job uh, in Arizona, and probably especially early in the season, things could be a bit tough uh, for, uh, for Archie Bradley. We've not updated projections on the site yet for him. We had him only pitching 11 games in 58 innings, so that update has not yet happened. But, uh, you know, here's, here's a guy that, based on potential, you might want him at the end of a draft, but I wouldn't pay a lot for him at this point.
0: Uh, Rob Carroll, when he was covering the rotation situation before the trade, mentioned that uh, that the fact that Bradley was excluded from the rotation was something of a surprise because he's been pretty good in spring. He had uh, 12 strikeouts to only uh, three walks in and in, in 16 innings or so, and he was kind of ahead of all the other Arizona pitchers, but they told him he was going to have to compete for a bullpen spot, and now this trade of Cahill kind of if you read that looks like a vote of confidence in Archie Bradley that the uh, that the Diamondbacks were looking for some way to get him into the rotation and the way they decided was to take their worst pitcher basically and send him along to Atlanta
1: yeah I think that's uh, that's exactly what Is I'm I'm, uh, I'm thinking about what I heard briefly about the trade last year I, I think in fact the Braves and Diamondbacks are, are almost going to split Cahill's salary for the season so they were trying certainly trying to get rid of him uh, so that they could open things up for Bradley
0: Nick, regular listeners to the show and certainly Baseball HQ subscribers know how highly we think of analyst Stephen Nickrand, who's been the starting pitcher buyer's guide columnist practically forever. I think he's started off reviewing like uh, Mordecai Three Finger Brown for the site and uh, never never let up. But uh, Stephen has now added the hitter's buyer's guide to his portfolio this season, and this week he wraps up spring training in the National League. And one of the guys I like to uh, your opinion on is a very interesting hitter, a guy who's always been somewhat controversial in fantasy circles, and that's the Nationals outfielder Bryce Harper. Stephen says we're still waiting for him to fulfill enormous upside. Of course, we are still waiting for that. He's still relatively young, but is this the year for Bryce Harper?
1: Let me talk a minute about what Stephen does in these these columns because it's important. We, We talk a lot about the fact that spring training stats don't mean anything. And that is very, very true. But what Stephen tries to do is look behind the numbers at, uh, at what's going on in terms of player skills and what the stats may indicate uh, about their skills development, especially in areas where they, where they need to develop something. Bryce Harper has been dynamic this spring. We're looking at a 1.042 OPS and perhaps even better, 12 walks, 10 strikeouts, and 36 at-bats. That's a tiny sample size but it seems to indicate that Bryce Harper is getting even better control of the strike zone uh, than, he, than he had perhaps a year ago when he had a 0.5 eye is what we were projecting, and, and certainly his historical numbers say that his batting eye has not been nearly as good as what we're seeing this spring, 0.37 batting eye a year ago. So based on what seems to be an improvement in batting eye and maybe a little bit of an improvement in patience and contact rate, Bryce Harper, yes, this could be the year that Bryce Harper breaks out, I mean, we're looking at a guy who, who was doing pretty well anyway a two, last year, even with an injury, 273 batting average, 13 home runs. Uh, certainly this could be the year that Bryce Harper begins to put things all together.
0: I'd be really curious to see when Bryce Harper develops a higher contact rate. In 2012 and 13, uh, 77 78%, it's a little short of the 80% that we like to see. Last year a, a pretty big decline to 70%, possibly swinging for the fences a little bit, but it didn't work. Uh, his expected power index and uh, hard hit contact rate were both not that great. In fact, his hard contact index was under league average. So there was a lot of things last year that were going the wrong direction. Now there were, I know that there's always concern when with Bryce Harper, about these nagging injuries that he gets and so forth. Uh, the projection for 2015, Nick, is not that rosy. At 22 home runs, a, a nice 270 batting average. Uh, doesn't sound like much, but in this batting average environment, it's not bad. But the counting stats in the 60s for both runs and RBIs.
1: Right. And certainly, you would hope you would hope for higher accounting stats with that number of at bats. But remember, Bryce was only 22. We there's there's a lot of there's a lot of skill there, and so we expect that the breakout could be coming. The other thing to look at in terms of that contact rate, you're absolutely right. We're looking at 10 strikeouts in 48 plate appearances. So you know we're we're somewhere right around that, um, right around that 80 percent. Not quite there yet, but uh, high 70s, almost 80 percent contact rate in the spring.
0: And the fact uh, remains, we're going to have to see if he can carry that over. Uh, Again, he he had the injuries. I think he hurt his thumb last year. He had knee surgery the year before that. So what Bryce Harper makes me think of is, uh, unfortunately, he's a player who always gets overdrafted. That is, you have to accept a lot of financial risk or, or high round risk in rostering Bryce Harper just to get him and if he was being sort of more uh, more logically priced or more rationally priced in the market, he could be a really good buy for somebody who's looking, especially in dynasty or keeper formats, because you said he's only 22 years old, and guys who get into the major leagues at a very young age, um, I talked about this last week with Gene McCaffrey, if a player makes the major leagues by age 20 or 21, he has a 50% chance of being a Hall of Famer. And Bryce Harper's been in the league. He's 22. This will be his third full season. He's a really good player, and he's and he's still very young, and he has a lot of time to put things together. But I'd be happier having two or three years of Bryce Harper to put it together and maybe get value over, over time. And a little less uh, enthusiastic about doing it in a single-year league or starting this year.
1: Yeah, I think you're you're making good sense there, as you as you say. Uh, still, Bryce Harper is certainly someone who's still being overdrafted. Uh, And so you want to be cautious in single year leagues, especially.
0: Nick, uh, Stephen Nickrand in his Batting Buyer's Guide Analysis of Spring Training in the National League also says that the Giants first baseman Brandon Belt is someone to watch. Uh, There's a lot of websites that are enthusiastic about Brandon Belt, by the way. And Stephen says there's 30 homer upside here.
1: Well, we talked about 30 homer upside in the, uh, in the forecaster, certainly. Uh, Brandon Belt's one of those guys. If, if you're, depends on what your league mates do in terms of, in terms of drafting. But Brandon Belt was hurt last year and ended up with only 214 at bats. Hit 12 home runs in those 214 at bats, which isn't bad at all. But, uh, you know, if he stays healthy and gets back to a 500 at bat season, certainly Brandon Belt is one of those people we would expect was, would, would be capable of putting up 30 home runs. We've been waiting for it. He's 27 years old. He's been doing very, very well this spring. Uh, at this point in the spring, we're looking at a, a three homer so far, a 1.099 OPS. So he's played well in spring training. Uh, I think certainly that power breakout is, uh, is looming on the horizon. As Stephen says, uh, power breakout speculations don't get much better than Brandon Belt at this point.
0: They don't, but uh, we should also caution that he's he missed a lot of time last year. I think he had a, another thumb injury, same as uh, Bryce Harper had. He was out uh, in midseason, and then he had a concussion in the second half, and that pretty much finished him off for the year. So this is a situation where Brandon Belt really has to remain healthy. And I think on the good side, a concussion is kind of a fluky thing. You get you bang into a wall or fall down and hit your head or something like that. It's it's of course it's very serious, but it's not. One of those kind of chronic bothersome physical injuries, like a knee problem or a shoulder problem, but he did have that broken thumb, and we know that hand injuries can be really problematic for power hitters.
1: Yeah, they can indeed, and I think the good thing, perhaps, about the spring is showing us that that hand injury at least has not affected spring training very much, and so that's at least a positive sign uh, in that regard. But you're right; I mean, you've always got to be cautious with a player who um, who has injuries. Luckily for for Belt. Last year was the first time he's shown that kind of injury-prone sort of thing since he's been in the majors. So maybe it was a fluky year, Uh, but it, it is something to be cautious about.
0: One other thing that to like about Brandon Belt might be the possibility of playing some outfield with Hunter Pence on, on the DL to start the season and uh, Angel Pagan also having some problems. Uh, so there's a chance maybe he picks up five appearances in the outfield in the early going and maybe gets a little bit of roster flexibility for you. We are projecting 23 home runs right now at BaseballHQ.com. Uh, again, the counting stats are not maybe what you want for a top-flight player, mid-70s in the runs and RBIs, and around a two fifty-six batting average. So far what we're saying is in 5x5, five five, it's about a $15 bet. Um, anything around that probably has some upside, but I wouldn't go hog-wild on Brandon Bell. I wouldn't bid on 30 home runs, we'll put it that way.
1: Yeah, I agree very definitely. You probably want to bid on the projection that we've got on the side, and certainly not much more than that.
0: Finally, Nick, I drafted St. Louis starting pitcher Carlos Martinez uh, in dollar days in my Tout Wars draft, and Stephen Nickrand, also covering the pitchers, as I mentioned, has talked about Martinez in his spring training roundup of National League pitchers. So according to Stephen, should I be excited about Carlos Martinez or should I be worried?
1: Yeah, I think you should be really excited about Carlos Martinez at this point. I mean, this is another guy we've been sort of waiting on for a breakout, and Carlos Martinez had had a... uh, Uh, an incredible spring, 16 strikeouts, five walks and 16 innings pitched, uh, and, and command gains, as Steven says, and this is the kind of thing that Steven looks at that, that you miss command gains against left-handed bats, nine strikeouts, one walk and seven innings pitched against left-handers. So, uh, the, 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 when Steven wrote the column, the problem was, it looked like Martinez might get squeezed out of a rotation spot, uh, and headed for the bullpen, um, It it, it looks now as though Carlos Martinez is going to be the fifth starter in St. Louis and certainly a huge amount of breakout potential, I think, at this point.
0: He had been having trouble with uh, some platoon splits. He was giving up a lot of, uh, especially slugging and uh, on base, uh, fairly high OPS against left-handers. So any improvement in that regard is certainly going to be welcome and could really be the tipping point for a good young pitcher finally solving that last problem. It's something that I know Steven's very big on when he analyzes uh, hitters and pitchers is uh, he writes during the season. He writes a column called "One Skill Away," and that—that that is, this pitcher or this hitter has all of the requisite skills to succeed except one. And once he figures out that last piece of the puzzle, you, that's when you see a, a pitcher or a hitter really go from being, you know, good to being exceptional.
1: Yes, very definitely. I th- the thing to be careful about with Carlos Martinez—he is, he is starting the season in the rotation, but. Over the past couple of years, Carlos Martinez has pitched better out of the bullpen, so he may not stay in that rotation for the entire season. Jamie Garcia is heading for the DL. Marco Gonzalez has been sent down to AAA. Both of those guys are threats to take that spot if, in fact, we don't see a breakout coming from Carlos Martinez very, very quickly because he's proven himself in the bullpen and would be a valuable bullpen piece for the Cardinals.
0: Not so valuable as a rotisserie player, unfortunately. If Carlos Martinez ends up in the bullpen, I, th- I can see him being widely dropped until he gets uh, picked back up and put in the rotation. So uh, the thing to watch if you're a Carlos Martinez owner is uh, how does he do getting out of the gate? If he starts off strong, I think he can solidify his position in the rotation. And as you said, if he struggles or stumbles early, that the, the Cardinals certainly have options and Carlos Martinez's uh, rotation life might be uh, short-lived, <laughs> not, not, and and short, not loved, if it's bad, I guess. Uh, Six or seven wins we're projecting, about a 350 ERA and a 130 whip. That's not bad. It's not great. It certainly has room for improvement. 113 strikeouts and 131 innings is about eight strikeouts per nine is what we're projecting. And so if we maybe give him uh, 50 more innings for full-time rotation, maybe another 45 strikeouts, a couple of wins, I think there's good upside here, Nick. Uh, Thanks very much for doing this. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you, Patrick. And we'll have real games to talk about even better. Uh, Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchup reports for BaseballHQ.com and is our man on the National League beat here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. Now it's time for the American League Report and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
2: Hey, PD. Always good to be here. About time for opening day, isn't it?
0: Getting right up close to opening day is right, and then a uh, full slate of games next week, Uh By the time we resume in a week's time, we'll have a lot of regular season action to talk about, all the surprises and stuff. But in the meanwhile, we have a lot to talk about as spring training winds to a close. And one of those things is the Astros' announcement that Luke Gregerson is going to at least start the season as closer. Um, Wasn't a big surprise given the big contract that he signed in the offseason. But you noted in your own Playing Time Today space at BaseballHQ.com, Jock, uh, that this had happened. What's going on with Houston for the l- full length of the season here?
2: Well, Gregerson has a pretty good skill set. Uh, he has, I think I noted, 19 saves in his major league career. Um, he looks like, if you look at the numbers, he has the capability to close. But if you look behind the numbers, he has an 88-mile-an-hour fastball and his 7.3 DOM, which is our term, our baseball HQ term for uh, strikeouts per nine innings. It, it leaves a lot of room for contact, and if you look at Chad Qualls' numbers from last year, and, and Qualls was the Houston closer, still on the team, he had very similar numbers to Gregerson, but occasionally he allowed hitters in the ninth to make too much contact off him. You know what happens. Luck can intervene, and he lost his closer job. Um, I would not be surprised to see um, Gregerson scuffle through the same problems, and if he does, Houston has plenty of options to replace him.
0: Beyond Chad Qualls, there's uh, a few other guys. Uh, I know Pat Neshek has some uh, late game experience. Tony Sip versus left-handers, and then there's the dark horse uh, Josh Fields.
2: Yeah, I really like Josh Fields. Um, he 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 really has the strikeout rate out of all these guys to to survive as a closer. He had a uh, an 11.5 DOM and a 3.30 expected ERA last year. His biggest problem has been that big fly ball rate and home runs. Um, it got a little better uh, in the second half last year. He was developing a changeup, and if he ever learns that fastball changeup combination to where he can eliminate some of those fly balls and home runs, he could be a full time closer for somebody.
0: When you say somebody, do you mean uh, is somebody Houston or is he a trade candidate? What do you mean, somebody?
2: Well, yeah, no, he's on. He's in Houston right now, and he's going to be there. He's starting the year on the DL. Um, he has some. Uh, I think he has some mild tendinitis. They don't expect it to be serious. But uh, if you're looking for someone to really break out on Houston, keep an eye on Qualls. But um, as Doug Dennis has noted throughout the year, there's there's value up and down this bullpen. I would not be surprised to see the saves really spread out here.
0: Um, Josh Fields on the deal with a groin injury, so that's a little, a little less troubling than arm trouble. We all, we hate to see a pitcher going on the deal with any kind of forearm tightness or, or those shoulder injuries or so forth. So uh, Josh Fields does make a good late game guy, I guess, if you're willing to uh, gamble on saves for a team that's not going to win a ton of games. Uh, over in Boston, the big announcement was that they're sending down uh, the Cuban free agent they signed, Rosny Castillo, and Jackie Bradley Jr. So uh, Matt Dodge looked at this and playing time today at Baseball HQ. What does it do to the Boston outfield?
2: Yeah, this wasn't much of of a surprise either. Uh, uh, Bradley's demotion was expected after his 2014 struggles, although he did did have a really good spring. Castillo's early injuries and his uh, quote-unquote rookie status as, as an MLBer made it pretty easy to ship him out as well.
0: Yeah, I also uh, had heard some stories about they weren't real pleased with how Ruzny Castillo was uh, working on uh, that, uh, I think he had some kind of minor injury and they weren't real pleased that he didn't seem to be digging in to try to get any better and doing his rehab and so forth, so maybe this is a bit of a wake-up call for him as well. Uh, I know that earlier in the spring, even before we heard any of this about Ruzny Castillo, manager John Farrell had already announced that Shane Victorino was going to be the starter in right field and let's be honest uh, or be charitable uh, Victorino is not the most productive outfielder in the world anymore what's going to go on with Victorino's status insofar as this whole outfield situation is concerned
2: well obviously Victorino has that big contract and Boston is trying to put the best face on it it's a veteran move uh, he's a shell of his former self he's had a dreadful spring and as Matt Dodge noted in his uh, column his inability to help hit left-handed pitch. Pitching, reportedly due to body soreness, may reduce him early on to a right-field platoon with Daniel Navar, Daniel Craig. Obviously, the two locks here are, are Hanley Ramirez and left-field Mookie Betts in center. And in a perfect world, Victorino's going to get healthy and hit right out of the box, and both he and Bradley will reestablish some value and be trading chips for starting pitching. And uh, Castillo will be called from Pawtucket. Uh, obviously, this may not happen. Victorino is more likely to end up on the uh, on the. Uh, disabled list. But regardless, don't assume Castillo is going to stay in the minors for too long. Right field pretty much looks like it's his. It's just really a matter of time.
0: So do you look at Rosny Castillo for, for leagues that haven't drafted yet? Anybody gets a little nervous about going the extra buck on Castillo with him in the minors? You think it's a minor blip and maybe this is a buying opportunity? Yeah,
2: I think it is. I mean, I don't think he's going to be the next Jose Abreu. Obviously, he doesn't have Abreu's power. He'll hit double-digit home runs and double-digit steals. But in a good Boston lineup and hitting in Fenway Park, he's going to be valuable. He could still even get 500 at-bats.
0: Also in playing time today, Jock, Tom Kephart at BaseballHQ.com noted that Justin Verlander will be opening the season on the DL with that triceps injury that never really came around all during spring. So we've seen Scherzer out, uh, now Verlander's out. They've got some problems in that rotation. What's it look like as they go into the uh, opening day?
2: Well, fortunately for the Tigers, Verlander isn't expected to be on the disabled list for long. Uh, They don't expect his injury to be serious. That said, as Tom points out, Verlander has historically been a workhorse and his stuff has been in decline now for a couple of years. With Max Scherzer and Rick Porcello gone, this puts some pressure on a rotation uh, in which both Anibal Sanchez and, and Shane Green now have to pick up some slack behind David Price. Sanchez has been reliable. He's really only had one great season to his credit, but he also has a D health grade in just one 200 inning pitch season.
0: In the BaseballHQ.com scoring system for players' Mayberry method, uh, after the numbers for, for offensive skills, there's also a, a three-letter code that uh, looks at their reliability in terms of health, experience, and, and uh, consistency, and uh, a D is not a good grade, especially for a pitcher. How much of that is a worry when you look at Annabelle Sanchez?
2: I think it's a big worry. I mean, it's like I said, he's had one 200 inning uh, pitch season to date. I think he tossed 160 innings last year. Um, when you're looking at uh, very limited minor league depth in the Detroit system and a very shaky bullpen, this has, uh, this has the makings of some potential problems for the Tigers.
0: He has had seasons of 195, 196, 196 innings, so it's uh, we, we say it's only one 200 inning season, but he's been close quite a few times. It's just last year he fell all the way back to 126, and uh, certainly something to worry about. We're projecting him for a 119 whip, a 354 uh, ERA, and as far as his uh, wins total, they're a good team. We're only projecting 12. Uh, I think that might be a bit skimpy because the Tigers are relatively good, but he's Shaping up as a fifteen-dollar player, would you go fifteen bucks on him? Um,
2: I would if I needed pitching. Um, I would probably uh, bet a little less than that on uh, on Anibal Sanchez, particularly with that bullpen.
0: You mentioned Shane Green. A lot of pundits on the interwebs really like Green as a potential sleeper pitcher. Uh, and also, what about Alfredo Simone?
2: Yeah, I like Green as well. Green had a terrific uh, end of season for New York. I was a little surprised the Yankees traded him, given that the, given the, that. Uh, that they needed pitching as well. Um, Simon is interesting. He's had a couple of years now with sub-4 ERAs. He doesn't strike out a lot of guys. We're not quite sure how he's getting it done. And now he's in the American League. Um, I still don't like that rotation as a whole uh, relative to the rotations we've seen in Detroit in previous years.
0: Shane Green had triple digits in base performance value with the Yankees last year but he's not a strikeout guy. we're looking for a, a Dom rate uh, 6 point4 6.5 strikeouts per nine it's not that great but he does have some decent looking pitches according to Steven Nickrand our uh, starting pitcher buyers guide columnist so this is a guy you know you could easily spend a buck on at the end of draft and not do not do too badly we're only projecting minus five dollars in value because of uh, the potential for limited innings but uh, Shane Green, Keep, keep him on the back of your uh, mind and at the bottom of your $1 list. Uh, Jock, a couple of weeks ago in your own American League West Playing Time Tomorrow column, you predicted that Erasmo Ramirez of the Mariners might be dealt because he was out of options but had no place in the Seattle rotation. Sure enough... Erasmo Ramirez has been traded to Tampa, so how does this affect the Rays and the Mariners in their rotations?
2: Well, we'll start with the Mariners, and then you and I touched on the Mariners last week and how that rotation's been affected by the offseason acquisition of J.A. Happ. Uh, Seattle actually has committed a rotation spot to Happ, who, as we noted, uh, came on strong at the end of uh, 2014 and may have been jerked around a little bit by Toronto, so there was really no spot for Ramirez in Seattle. His uh his departure turns two thousand and fourteen surprise Rowanis Elias into rotation insurance. Uh Elias has been optioned to triple A Tacoma. That rotation, fronted by Felix Iwakuman, now filled out by Taiwan Walker, James Paxton and Hap, appears to be set to, to begin uh two thousand and fifteen.
0: Ramirez uh looks like the fourth slot in Tampa for now and not a great pitcher, not a bad pitcher. He might get a little bit of help uh, here and there from pitching in Tampa, but he's uh, not a high strikeout guy, but he does keep the ball in the strike zone, doesn't walk a ton of guys to help the uh, the whip ratio a little bit, but he gives up a lot of hits. He's, he's not a real strong pitcher.
2: Yeah, he, um, he has more opportunity in Tampa Bay than he has in, in Seattle, particularly given the Ray's early season injuries. Uh, he's got a great changeup and, and he was a strike thrower until the first half of last year when he started to walk a lot of guys. He, he got that, uh, corrected in the second half, but he had gopheritis all year last year. He gave up a ton of home runs. He's got a lot to prove this year. And, and like you said, uh, he, he's not, he's not, uh, a solid guy, but he's, he's a speculative pickup if you're looking for pitching in deep leagues.
0: Finally, Jock, in the American League West, Oakland finally announced what a lot of us suspected was going to happen. Outfielder Coco Crisp is going to have surgery to get rid of some bone chips in his throwing elbow. That's going to be a procedure that sidelines him for six to eight weeks. It's something he was initially trying to play through. It didn't work out as it so often does not. You touched on some of this in your own recent Playing Time Tomorrow space last week when it looked like Crisp wasn't going to be out for very long. Six to eight weeks is quite a long stretch. What does it do to the Oakland lineup?
2: Well, first off it's interesting because the a's have surprised a few people with what what has been a very good spring with some interesting unknown names doing a lot of the damage but but honestly, this is where one has to be really suspicious of spring training stats, particularly in Arizona, where the air is thin and you've got a lot of uh hard sun baked surfaces um getting back to oakland per se um, um the team is positionally versatile per usual ben zobrist is is likely to play some outfield in in in, uh, in place of Crisp, leaving second base open initially to Eric Sogard, who who was playing uh, who was starting a lot last year for the A's.
0: The A's also, Jock, have a lot of younger guys that are attracting some interest, not only in the regular baseball press, but in the fantasy baseball world as well, particularly speed merchant Billy Burns.
2: Yeah, uh, Burns was a guy who started to attract attention last year at this time. I think he stole 10 bases and 13 opportunities. He hasn't, interestingly enough, he hasn't burned up the base pass this spring. He's stolen four bases, but he's been caught four times. Burns has hit 397 and he's a perfect example of a spring player who's hitting the ball hard on the ground and it's, and it's doing a lot of bouncing through those hard infields. Um, he's had a terrific spring, um, and obviously anything can happen in a small sample. I don't expect him to hit this well when, when the games start. He hit a combination of two thirty-seven between double A AA and triple A. He doesn't have a lot of power. Um he he, he might steal twenty bases in a in a part time role, particularly now with Chris Bout if he's getting three, four starts a, a week. Um unless you really need stolen bases, he's a guy that I would let your opponents chase.
0: Yeah, he's one of those one-category guys uh, that kind of doesn't help you in any of the other categories and, in fact, can actively hurt you. Uh, 237, you mentioned last year, through A AA and A in the Oakland organization. Uh, the year before, 315, but at lower levels. I don't know. I, I'm going to ask Todd Zola about these uh, high-speed single-category guys and how you can maybe balance things out. But uh, I agree with you. I think Billy Burns could be a a, a very attractive, shiny bauble type of uh, guy that everybody c- catches the glint off the uh, Christmas tree, as it were, and can't keep their hands off. And maybe they should.
2: If you're going to speculate on an on an Oakland name, um, I would I would try to go with uh, Kana. Or I think it's pronounced Kana, um, Kana. Uh, he he's versatile, he can play first base and left field uh, he's a rule five guy, so they're not going to cut him early on. I think um now with Chris Spout, he's going to get some left field at bats in addition to at bats against left handed pitchers from first base. This is a guy um he hit uh six home runs this spring. he came on strong, but then again even even there, he struck out twenty two times uh in seventy two at bats He only walked four times. Um, he's got some holes in his swing, so um, if you're gonna gonna take a gamble here, realize that's what it is. You're gambling on his power.
0: Yeah, probably not a gamble worth making in uh, in mixed leagues. Could be worth something though, uh, worth a try in in uh, deeper single league formats. Jock, thanks a million for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again next Friday with some real games to talk about.
2: Okay, PD, that sounds great.
0: Doc Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, it's our regular weekly talk with Todd. It's Todd Zola coming up on Baseball HQ Radio.
3: Gibson swings and a
2: fly ball to deep right field. This is going to be a home run. Unbelievable. A home run for Gibson. And the Dodgers have won the game 5-4. I don't believe what I just saw. Believe what I just saw. Is this really happening, Bill? It is happening, and they've got to help him home. The third place coach uh, Joe Moffaton had to give him a little push, and all the Dodgers are around all played. I don't believe what I just saw. One of the most remarkable finishes to any World Series game. A one-handed home run by Kurt Gibson and the Dodgers have won it five to four and i am stunned bill i have seen a lot of dramatic finishes and a
0: lot of sports but this one might top almost every other one baseball hq radio Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. As we approach opening day and drafts and auctions across the game, BaseballHQ.com is working overtime to keep you caught up with everything you need to succeed. Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column has his annual Pundits on Parade, comparing Baseball HQ's projections with six other expert sites across a variety of players chosen by BaseballHQ.com subscribers. Dr. HQ Rick Wilton continues his positional health reports with two segments one on starting pitchers the other on closers might be shorter for Rick to list the pitchers who aren't getting hurt and Matt Cedarholm has a research piece on how to speculate for saves plus we have all the other great stuff that's refreshed every day to get you ready for your drafts and on into the season. Now it's time for our regular weekly talk with Todd. And once again, it's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, Chandler Park, ESPN, Fantasy Alarm, Masters Ball, and others. Hey, Todd, welcome back to the show.
4: Really good to be back, Patrick.
0: I know they say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, and you're in Vegas, but uh, fortunately you're willing to not let it all stay there. Uh, First of all, let's explain you're there for the uh, NFBC drafts. Uh, How many drafts are you doing this year in Vegas?
4: I'm doing, I think it's up to eight, uh, eight drafts in Vegas. Most of them were last weekend. I've got, I've got two left. Actually, it's seven. I, I just miscounted in my head. It's seven. I did one online while I was in Vegas. It wasn't a live draft. So depends what tech, how technical you want to be seven or eight. You you also
0: of uh, keep a keen eye on the situation in the macro sense, and I'm wondering what uh, kind of any new trends you might have been seeing as far as how teams are strategizing, how they're splitting their value between hitting and pitching, how they're valuing certain players, anything along those lines.
4: I'm not. So, I don't know about the most of it's drafts, so I'm not 100 percent sure about splits. Uh, and I, in the auctions that I do, I haven't. They're they're recorded by the league, and I, I don't do my own, so I'm not sure. But there's definitely some trends, more, more with players, and I don't want to call it knee-jerk reactions, but you can definitely tell people are paying attention to news. Uh, Chris Bryant, for instance, is, is he's going anywhere from the second round to the sixth or seventh round of these drafts. People that want Bryant are just taking Chris Bryant, even with being sent down for uh, anywhere from, what, two weeks to, to two months, I guess. But that's not that's not deterring anybody. Chris Bryant is the uh, is the is the is the jewel of the uh, of the NFBC in 2015. It seems.
0: How about uh, any sort of movement of pitchers up or down the draft list? Uh, that's something that everybody looks at every year. Where do the Max Scherzers go? The Steven Strasburgs, The David Prices? Uh, every year it seems like we're waiting for those pitchers to move up because the common wisdom is that they're not as risky as we think. Have you seen anything along that line?
4: Well, yeah, the high-stakes league have been—I don't want to say ahead of the field because that implies they know it that 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 it's right—but they have been they have been drafting pitching earlier, and it's a monkey see, monkey do sort of thing. And a couple teams have been successful at it, so others try to follow. Uh, Kershaw's been uh, in the top three. He went number one in a couple of drafts. Uh, actually, he's the only one. Actually, Mike Trout went number one in every single draft except. Uh, a couple with Kershaw, and last night Miguel Cabrera finally went number one by the defending champions, who uh, who really really like Mike, Mike uh, Miguel Cabrera, Greg Morgan and his dad. They they write for Masters Ball, so I, I had an inkling Greg would be doing that. But anyway, um, which just if you like your guy, you just take him, even if it's even if it's not Mike Trout. But Kershaw is going top three, and then uh, Felix Hernandez is usually going in the first round in a 15 teamer. He's going in the high teens, and then uh, Scherzer and Strasburg, and Chris Sale. People don't seem to be too worried about Chris Sale and the in the injury. Um, I'm not either, but I was hoping to get a discount on yeah. him, and it's just not there. Uh, people are treating him as if he's not missing any starts and he's not hurt, which is a little bit, uh, you know, a little bit odd for this crowd. But you know, it is what it is.
0: You mentioned that Chris Bryant has been a, a darling of a lot of NFPC drafters. Any other players who have jumped up the list or jumped down the list that caught you a little bit
4: by surprise? To borrow our friend Jeff Erickson's term that has got serious helium is Mookie Betts. I don't know if it was because of you know sending Rosny Castillo down or just people are finally saying, you know what, the kid's just going to play. He is going second, third, fourth round and... You know, is conservative. You know, I'm a Red Sox fan, so I don't want to you know have that bias. But as conservative as if I want to be, you know, I, I can't I can't you know insult anybody for doing that. If you if you plot out the numbers and if he is as good as, as he looks, he could be a a power speed combo and a, hitting at the top of one of the more prolific lineups. Darn it! He, you know, he he could be a second or third round player. That's what's scary about it. I want to come on and and tell you that they're silly for doing it, but I'm not so sure they are.
0: Yeah. I- the only silly thing I would say about it is that the, the, the standard wisdom, and, and a lot of times you can win your league by going against the standard wisdom. But the standard wisdom is, if you're going to spend twenty five bucks on a guy, or if you're going to burn a second or third round pick on a guy, you really want something that's a little more solid than Mookie Betts. As good as he appears to be so far, he is a rookie. There's a lot of there's a lot of risk in in regards to his performance. Do you think guys are just looking at that and going, Yeah, I get it,
4: but I don't care. I think he I think this guy's the real deal. Well, some of it is that in order to win the overall competition here, to beat over 400 teams, you need to take chances like that. Uh, and, you know, it's something that we've, we've talked a little bit about. I'm trying to introduce more risk into my game, at least in the high-stakes arena. Now, taking Mookie bets in the second or third round was a little bit too risky for me, just because there's, there's, no, there's, there's performance unknown. And there's also... a you know the the guy can he play 162 games in order to be worthy of that high a draft pick? You have to prove that you can play 150 plus games. And there are alternatives. They do have Rosny Castillo, who they sent down, but he could dabble in center field. Uh, you know, so if they you know want to keep bets fresher, you know, if he looks like he's becoming run down, they could they do have alternative plans. Uh, so again, I'm not I'm not going to chastise anybody for doing it, but he wasn't a move. That I was willing to make. But yet, for whatever reason, I'm willing to take George Springer in the third round. And um, that, you know, Mookie Betts could, he's not going to match him in power. He can match him in speed or more speed and have a better batting average. But for some reason, I'm willing to take Springer, which it might be a little backwards thinking. But on the other hand, you, you, you wanted, you know, other players and just doing what you want to do. Lindy Hinkleman, who's won this event twice, started my main event league with George Springer and Starling Marte as his 1 2. Um, you know, some people were just, you know, goofy laughing at that until they realized it was Lindy and suddenly it was a great play. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not so sure. I think that, you know, Lindy's playing with house money. He's one of the best. He can do whatever heck he wants. But Marte and Springer, to me, you're giving away your first round pick at that point. I think like, I like them two and three, but Lindy does what Lindy does and he wins.
0: I heard Lindy actually talking with Jeff Erickson and Chris Liss on XM Radio, and they, of course, they asked Lindy about that uh, that seemingly odd choice to go with George Springer in the first round, and he explained it that he really wanted George Springer this year. He thought George Springer was going to be a top-round player, and there was, he, in his estimation, there was no chance that Springer was going to come to him in the second round that he'd be gone, and, and that would upset his plan. And so he basically said, yes, I understand that he's not a nominal first-round player, but he's a first-round player for me. I wanted him, and this was the only way I was going to get him. And he ended up uh, thinking largely the same thing about Marte as a second-rounder. I don't think is that indefensible a choice.
4: Right now, I agree in principle, and I've talked about this too because I do this. I don't care what the ADP says. I want the player to deliver what I need you know for that draft spot I have an expectation for that draft spot and maybe maybe Lindy and I just differ on how good Springer is gonna be but I don't I, I see him falling short of that draft spot now like I said I've got him in the third round all over the place cuz I see him as a second rounder and you know you don't win the draft in the first round so maybe there's some upside I don't see and Lindy's so good at picking back-end players if he is giving anything away up front, he's going to more than make up for it. You know how diligent he is in the back end, so that's not a problem. Plus, you know, as, as you know, as the man Ron Chandler's talked about, you know, what's there's about a thirty-five percent success rate in the first round. Right. So there's a little bit of buffer right there. You know, I mean, if if one out of three players hits, I don't think Springer's going to bust. But you know, you know, you can win a league without nailing your first round pick. So it's it's an interesting it's. I still want to make sure the guy gives me the return of investment for that particular spot, but I, you know, I do agree that you can jump the guy up regardless of what the ADP says.
0: He told uh, Jeff and uh, Chris Liz uh, on the XM broadcast where he was picking, but I don't remember. Do you?
4: It was eleven or twelve. Yeah, I, I had the uh, I had the number one pick. Uh, the curse I call it the curse of the number one pick because uh, you you sort of you have to take Mike Trout. Yeah. But if you ask me, Mike Trout versus the field. For the best player in fantasy, i will taking the field. Sure, but, yeah. You know, I, I'm saying that tongue in cheek because, of course, you're you're not paying to bet for the best player necessarily. You're paying for you know a very high floor as well as you know a potential high ceiling. So, I, you know, of course, I'm just saying that tongue in cheek. But um, you know, still, Trout versus the field, I'm taking the field.
0: The reason I ask about where uh, Hinkleman was picking is because when you look at a graph of the value of players as you as you go down from Pick number one to pick number two and so forth. If you use dollar values or some kind of points valuing system, it's a it's a fairly steep curve that flattens out. Uh, who's to say once you get down to that 12th, 13th pick, you know maybe he could have got a guy who the chalk says um, is number 12 or 13. But there's there really often isn't that much difference between the guy you get at 12 or 13 and the guy somebody else gets at 15, 16 or 17. Now, the valuations are starting to flatten out by then, aren't they? Are they not?
4: Yeah, I call it the slinky effect, you know, the old-fashioned slinky. You grab it at the very top, and you let it fall by itself, and the rings at the top, you know, are further apart, and as it, you move down that slinky, you know, the rings are pretty much stuck together at the bottom. And if you consider those rings to be value, that's kind of what happens with fantasy dollars or potential or worth or whatever you want to say. At the end of the first round, there's still there's still a delta of 2 or $3 between players, but you know that that's 20, 20 at bats, or you know that that's two homers or two steals. So it's well within the you know range of variance. Yeah. Uh, down at you know, but you know on paper he, he probably left six dollars on the table. But six dollars can be made up, you know, at the very end by by nailing your 20th pick and having him be a 10th rounder. So you said there's there's it's it it makes sense. It's just how I think the difference is. How one actually values George Springer, maybe maybe Lindy Fields, he's gonna have you know twenty twenty more points of batting average because I'm not sure how high you can go with the with the homers and steals. I'm mean, I'm pretty much thirty homers and twenty steals to me is, is pretty aggressive. Right. So you know maybe instead of two forty he's seen two sixty and there's the difference.
0: And of course, off the top of our heads, I don't know that we know who, who else he could have picked in that, uh, wherever he was picking 12 or 13, and and uh, he's a good player. Lindy Hinkleman's won this event twice, he's a, a very well-established guy, he puts a lot of effort into it, and who's to say? And I also heard on the broadcast, by the way, that in the aftermath of Lindy taking George Springer and uh, Starling Marte as high as he did, they started jumping up the ADPs in in the other drafts that went on after people started finding that out.
4: Oh, absolutely, and uh, it's I, I I what I do is last night for the, uh, I actually watched administered some of the drafts because they were a, bu- a bunch going on and they asked me to lend a hand and they were talking about it in the chat rooms of the online drafts. They were talking about that that it, it's kind of interesting. It's kind of funny how that uh, how that all works out. But um, yeah, he's a, uh, you know, it's, he's the EF. They call me the EF Hutton of yeah. of NFPC. When Lindy talks, whether it's actual words. Or his drafts, people people listen.
0: I know you participated last year in a diamond auction league at NFBC, a fairly big uh, entry fee, fairly substantial winnings. You won that league last year. Uh, did you go back into the diamond league this year? And how did the draft go? If you did,
4: this was last year. was It was the ultimate auction, and this year they went up a level. They uh, voted to ra- raise the entry fee even more. So yeah, my 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 partner and I. Entered the diamond, the the inaugural diamond auction of the NFBC, 15-team uh, mixed auction, and we there were two of them last year. Uh, the the winner of the other one was a a gentleman you know, Dave Potts. So uh, I won this once that we were both in the uh, in this in in the in this diamond auction, and uh, well, you asked. It was it was one of the most bizarre uh, five hours I've ever spent doing fantasy baseball. It was it was just a weird auction as far as Uh, strategies going it was a weird because we know the tendencies of a couple teams and I I pegged how the auction was going at the beginning so we have to sort of had to adjust knowing what other teams are going to do and it was uh it was different I don't know if it was because teams were I don't think teams were tight as far as wanting to spend because of the entry fee but I do think people were trying to strategize to have an out plan to you know if you finish in fourth you get your money back Now, why you'd want to risk that much money just to get it back and that's it? Well, that's a that's a story for another day. But uh, but there definitely did seem to be teams that were, you know, doing the you know try to get really really good in one or two categories to try to ensure that they finish in the top four.
0: I agree with you about. It uh, doesn't seem to make sense to to wager heavily on on getting your money back. It's like betting nothing but show horses at the racetrack, and you know, walking out of there having risked you know five thousand bucks and coming out of there with fifty to fifty or something like that hardly seems to be that the payoff minimal as it is, is worth the investment, risky as it is. Uh, uh, I read some follow-up on on uh, online of various drafts that went on uh, at NFPC, and I noticed in your league that there was a lot of guys punting saves, more than uh, anybody would expect.
4: In this particular this diamond auction, there were four teams that punted saves. I believe one at the end picked up a Picked up a Parnell or a Hawkins to try to get the you know four quick points. Although there's still fab moves throughout the year, so who knows what they'll do throughout the year. But during the auction itself, there were four teams that did not buy what one considered to be a you know a conventional closer for for conventional money, and we didn't notice it right away. But my partner and I we wanted to go for the the Mark Melanson, Steve Ciszek, uh Cody Allen. We wanted two of those you know that right below the top tier but before you get into the eh, Rodney and 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 Benoit and that sort of tier and we got we got our guy we got Melanson and then we missed on c and then Hector Rondon who's also in this group for us let him go at 15 and I and I turned to my partner Sam and I said I think we just made a mistake because Cody Allen's the last good closer left and there's so many teams. Without, they're going to start chasing Allen, and we're, we're going to, you know, we're going to end up overpaying to get our second closer because we really wanted. That was part of our plan was the second closer. We got Cody Allen for less than any of these other closes went for, for like thir- like thirteen dollars or something. At which point, you know, we realized right then and there what was going on. These other teams weren't buying closers, and, and there was a break at the end of that particular round, and two teams came up to me and said, you know, dude, if you know if You know we wouldn't have gotten him but we already had two closers and at the end of the draft two more teams came up and said to me you you wouldn't have gotten him that cheap had we known we were going to buy a third closer we would have bought him instead of you know benoit or whatever so we didn't recognize it right away so we were sort of fortuitous at this point that we were able to get our second closer but right then and there we knew what was going on and we spent the break trying to figure out well if you're not buying saves what are you buying and how is that going to influence what we need to buy the rest of the time
0: that's exactly the question i was going to ask it, it when four teams which is uh you know a, a a pretty substantial chunk of a league just decides that saves have no value that revalues saves for everybody else and whatever they're pumping their money into re- revalues those stats at the same time so you've got to be re- really uh, quick to react in, in the moment when you notice somebody's doing an extreme strategy of any kind like this it seems to that you you have to kind of recalibrate on the fly gosh uh, we we thought that the home runs were going to be worth 60 cents a piece or whatever it was but if all of these guys are funneling their closer money 25 26 dollars a team into chasing power for instance that means those home runs with more money chasing them are going to go up in value how did you respond to that
4: three of the teams that had no saves, had two star pitchers, so that was what they, you know, they were going to build, going for wins and Ks and keep their ratios intact by going the star pitchers. The third, the, th- the fourth team, really couldn't tell if they had anything special in mind at the at the time, uh, but what it did was we we didn't we decided we didn't want to pay the the top money for a stud pitcher because we suspected they'd go a little higher than we were willing to go, and we were right. But we thought we'd be one of the reason we thought we'd be able to get the Sonny Grays and the Jeff Samarges a little bit less expensive. But whereas teams weren't chasing, you know, the saves, they were chasing the starting pitchers. So the starting pitchers were going for a little bit above what we expected. So to compensate, you know, we we wanted a semi-ace. And I've heard good things about Garrett Richards, and it's not a you know, it's a leap of faith, but at this point you sort of had to. So we sort of – we got Julio Teheran, who we like, but he may be lacking wins. Um, you know, you can't predict wins, but Ed is not very good. Love his ratios. But to sort of get that second ace, we sort of had to take the leap of faith that we you know there was an injury discount for Garrett Richards and that he may miss three or four starts. Okay, so he's going to miss him. But when he comes back, we have our second ace. So that was sort of the, uh, the idea, and we got him. And if Garrett Richards has a good year and brilliant – if Garrett Richards doesn't have a good year, well, I may be looking for a new partner next year. So, <laughs> or, 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 or he may be looking for a new partner right. next year. One or the other. But that was what we to compensate. And that at that point, we had our two, you know, what we expected, and then it's just playing the field to get, you know, at some point prices do come down, like in any auction, and it's just cherry picking what you want at the end. But that was basically what we did was uh, was anoint Garrett Richards as our second starting pitcher hoping that he comes back pretty quickly.
0: How were the star offensive players valued? Uh, how much did Trout go for? What about, uh, what about McCutcheon, uh, Goldschmidt, Rizzo? Uh, uh, What's-his-hammer in, uh, in Chicago? Abreu, did, did these guys pretty much follow what you'd expected in value, or were they, uh, were they a little higher than you thought?
4: Actually, they, it was, what was surprising is they pretty much followed. Um, it was the, the starting pitching went higher, but the hitters pretty much went chalk. At least according to what I've seen in other auctions, um, you know Trout was probably around 50, and then everybody else fell in. In the in the 39 was sort of the you know McCutchen or Goldschmidt, someone would go for 39, and they fell you know in the high 30s to the mid 30s down below. And what was interesting, I mentioned earlier that there's a couple teams that you know their strategies. There's one team who's renowned for just sitting in the middle. And he's a very, very good player, very strong player, um, has had a lot of success in this, in the, in the regular auction format. And I noticed at this point that he was not going to be able to do his thing because there just were not going to be the, the cherry picking players in the middle unless he jumped in earlier and started to buy players a little more expensive than he usually is. And dang if the guy didn't do it! So you know, just as I was sort of thinking about it, he he jumped in and he, he got a couple players in the low twenties. So he was still able to do his plan. So he he noticed it as well that that just you could just tell that there weren't going to be the plethora of you know you can get you know 14 hitters at eight dollars that are worth 13, but you know you save a lot of money, but you you don't have a very good hitting staff or hitting hitting lineup. Right. You do need to to both get the bargains and spend your spend all your money and uh so it was interesting to follow that team because i was actually following that team because once we get to the middle third we're usually clashing with them because we're both trying to pick off those players i'm only trying to pick off five he's trying to pick off eight or nine but we're usually looking at the same players so i was kind of seeing what they were doing to try to uh you know avoid clashing on players and if they're filling up their middle then i don't worry about my middle cuz i know i'll be able to get the middle guys cheaper later that sort of thing so that speaks towards knowing your competition and you know it's showing bias towards players in the league that you think are good but i'll do that if if i don't want to clash over players of the same position so if i notice a team that i respect has got you know two corners i will try to get my middle next so i won't be fighting them with corners later
0: in general you mentioned earlier cherry picking your uh, your end game guys and I know it's kind of a a, a long standing um, thing that you've always stated and that you I know you believe which is you don't really need to be as worried as you think about end game guys because not everybody values your end game guys the way you value your end game guys. And Todd when you when you go into an auction do you have a separate list of of the guys that you're targeting for those $1 and $2 slots, 4 or $5 slots that you know are going to come at the end or do you just rely on your general knowledge of the player pool to take what the table gives you?
4: Well, I I use tiers. Um so there you know all the names are there, but I will write on the tiers names that I don't want to forget. Um so I mean I I the guy that I'm sort of kicking myself because I actually forgot a couple times was a, a guy Sort of annoyed, in your neck of the woods, Devin Travis, who, you know, middle infielders at the end, you got your D.J. LeMay Hughes and, you, and you got your Joe Panix. These guys are nice. They're not going to hurt you. But in, with with middle infielders not being, you know, quality but being such quantity, I'm kind of liking taking a shot at a, at a Devin Travis as my, you know, middle infielder at the end of a draft. And if it doesn't work out, I'll just go to the waiver wire and pick someone up that, you know, D.J. LeMay to replace him. Um, so I kid I didn't write his name down. <laughs> he was on my sheet, but I just, I, he got lost in the shuffle. So to answer your question is, I try to do my best to write the guys down so I don't forget, uh, that I want them or, or so in this, unfortunate unfortunately in this case, he, he escaped me. I got one more chance to get him in a couple hours. So I hope to still have him.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola, talking with Todd. And Todd, I know you do projections for ESPN.com for their fantasy baseball offerings, and uh, you recently had a draft that you set up, and you ended up kind of drafting against yourself for a lot of it. How'd that happen?
4: Yeah, it's kind of funny. Actually, it happened twice. Um, The first time was the, the FSWA, the Fantasy Sports Writers Association, asked a few of us, to host uh, a writer's draft so i was i was privileged to be asked by andy barons the uh the president of the fswa to host a draft and opted to do it off of espn um, and as you m- mentioned i have a, a good part of the say influence in the in the in the default draft list in their draft room and you know as much as as much as we have our own list and have our own guys i think you know, I've, we've talked about this with Peter Kreutzer as far as doing the online Tout Draft too. We think there's some influence in the in the default draft list. So it might not have been for every pick, but I have to believe that every once in a while, when when a when a, you know a guy's looking at a couple players and he's and he, you know the tiebreaker, he's just going to use a default list. And if the default list is my actual list, uh, I was getting sniped a whole lot more than I normally do. Now in the FSWA, I don't mind so much. Because um, there's this, uh, it's called Slugging for Jude. A, a member of the industry, fantasy industry, is trying to raise some money for a, for a, for a, a friend of his whose uh, son who has got leukemia. So what we're doing is, it's actually a separate thing than the FSWA, but I combined them because I could only, only add one more draft onto my docket. But the, the donations or, or charitable uh, contributions via the draft are going to this fund. So what I did was I said, anybody who beats me, I'm going to donate X dollars to the to the fund. So if I end up getting in last place in this league, I'm not going to mind so much.
0: And uh, if people want to participate, I know that the uh, Slugging for Jude uh, League is also taking direct donations through a, one of those fund crowdfunding type of sites. Do you know the details of that?
4: I don't. But if you if you Google uh, Slugging for Jude. Uh, it will come up. I I'm not at my normal computer. I don't have that information handy. But if anybody's interested, I mean, they shoot me a tweet, shoot me an email, and I can hook you up if you can't find it yourself. Um, it is, there's a lot of t- you can even you can even um, hashtag it on Twitter, and I'm sure you can. Someone who's clever can can backtrack it that way as well. Hashtag slugging for Jude, and uh, there's an art, a couple articles on on the web about people on their teams and about the fund itself.
0: Todd, uh, as you know, uh, we have uh, in the uh, fantasy baseball expert community, one of the favorite tropes or ideas that pops up about this time every year as we head for opening day is this whole idea of wild predictions or long shot gambles or, you know, those kind of things. And everybody says you know, comes up with these things like Paul Goldschmidt will hit 72 home runs or something like that. And it's always prefaced by, I don't think this actually can happen, but it wouldn't surprise me. So, uh, you don't have to really worry about somebody at the end of the season going, you're the idiot who said Paul Goldschmidt was going to hit 70 home runs because it's just part of a kind of, it's almost a, a throwaway type of idea. But I saw someone somewhere that made a, a what I thought was a really interesting wild prediction. And that was that Eric Young down in Atlanta would combine an on-base percentage under 290 with a stolen base level of over 50. Now, I don't care about whether you, if you want to talk about whether that prediction has any likelihood or not, that's up to you. But I'm really curious about hearing your response to this. How many stolen bases does a specialist like Eric Young, a single value player, how many stolen bases does he have to pick up to offset the
4: disastrous contributions he makes across the board otherwise? It all goes into team planning, and, and I know that Ron's written about this, and so have I. I don't mind the Ben Revere's and the Eric Young's and those sort of players, but you have to go into it planning to back that with uh, a Chris Carter, uh, something like that, where now Young's batting average isn't going to be the same as Ben Revere's, so it's probably not as good of a an example. But I think you can make it work, but you have to... Go into it, and and you have to assume that Young goes for a little bit under what he should be worth based upon the little black box, and some of these other one-trick ponies, as far as hitters go, uh, do as well. And at the end of the day, you can make it work. Um, you know, specifically about Young, who knows if he's going to keep the job as long as it is. You know, that to me, there's a risk there. How well he actually keeps the job, but you know, neither here nor there. The point being, if you if you tell me in advance he's going to get 50 steals and hit 240. You know, is he on my radar? Well, if I felt he was going to go under market value and I could balance it with Chris Carter and and some other hitters, yeah, you know what? I might I might strategize around that just for not in a high money league, but for for fun, I might.
0: Yeah, that's the point. It's the high money leagues I'm more interested in because that's where you really have to be much more diligent about those kind of things. We all uh, over our lifetimes have played in leagues where you don't. You know, it's fun to experiment rather than really putting anything on the line. So you you said if Eric... Young,
4: real quick, there's always somebody in these high-stakes leagues that will do a modified Sweeney, that they will ignore power. And that's where you get, that's where these Eric Youngs come into place, although he hurts your batting average a bit, but in theory you back it with so many other guys, that more than likely um, he will be taken by the guy of the 15 doing, I call it modified Sweeney because Sweeney was better back in the day when it was four by four Right. and you're only blowing two of the four categories here. You kind of, if you can build the runs up, it can work, but if you don't keep the runs up along with the steals and the average in it, that's why it's called modified. Uh, but, um, usually that's where you can tell and a lot of people are doing that. They're getting their D Gordon and they're getting Billy Hamilton and you can see right away, if they're trying to backfill it with Carter or if the next player is a is another speed guy, you know what they're doing right away.
0: Yeah, I did a, a BaseballHQ.com study of whether the Sweeney plan can work anymore, and I, and I agree with you entirely that in five x five, it's extremely difficult. And the problem is, well, it's, there are two problems with it. The first is, as you mentioned, the original Sweeney plan was basically to grab enough stolen base guys to win that category and who had enough batting average to win that category and then fill your whole the re- whole rest of your roster with guys who literally weren't going to play. So you went into the league with a, with a roster of five or six active hitters, all of them uh, batting average and stolen base guys, and the rest of them literally not in, in Major League Baseball, unless you could find a backup catcher you thought might hit 290 for you in 100 at bats or something like that. And uh, it seems like if you want to pursue the idea nowadays, the, way, the only way you could really make it work would be to target. You'd have to target runs stolen bases and batting average which means going after your jose reyes types and and guys that you think are going to hit at the top of decent orders mookie bets uh, that might score a lot of runs in addition to to piling up some stolen bases and batting average for you
4: in the, the the modified sweeney one of the advantages was you're going after players that at least you don't have to get them early uh that people don't care about yeah to pull it off now just as you suggested you have to go after some of the guys that if i'm just trying to build a balanced lineup you know, I'm just as interested in Jose Altuve as you are, but he, you know, if you're trying to do the modified Sweeney, you know, you really need Jose Altuve on your team. Uh, so there's a lot, the supply and demand is a lot higher uh, nowadays, and people have pulled it off. It, it, it's more one of those where you're trying to play strategies again than trying to win. But, um, you know, the, didn't mention it was we talking about the auction, but the reason I don't like these, I don't want to call them gimmick but necessarily, but all these strategies where you're planning to do really well in some categories and maybe not so well in others, you don't have the in-season capability to manage a roster as well as someone who's just trying to look for balance. Now, there's no trading in these leagues, so you have to draft the balance. But, you know, in this in this auction league we talked about maybe my team totals aren't as impressive as I might want coming out of a draft, at least visually. But with, with three or four teams going just so heavy on offense is what they did, and then a couple of other teams going so heavy on starting pitching, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, all we need to do is manage the teams, manage the categories. So we're the best team that didn't sell out to get offense. And we're the best team that didn't sell out to get all the starting pitching. Finished fourth in each category. There's a word for that. It's called Champion. So, you know, that's what we're kind of looking forward to doing.
0: And of course there's uh, in, in the regular, in the main event of NFPC, you're not only trying to win your league, you're trying to win the overall. And I, if there's one truism about that particular aspect of the competition, it is, you cannot win the overall if you punt a category.
4: There was an auction overall. Someone actually did. Now it's, it's extremely difficult, but I wouldn't recommend doing it, but I never say always and I never say never. Um, the, the margin of error is so slim. It wasn't the, it wasn't the main event. I think an auction championship a couple years ago, somebody did win by punting saves. Uh, but you know, it's, you, you have to really hit on everything else and you can't just punt saves. You have to, what am I going to do with the assets that I would have funneled towards saves? I think some people try it. I'm just going to punt saves and they don't, you know, think what the, you know, okay, that's great. What are you going to do instead? A lot of people don't do that next step, which which makes the which on paper, or at least people looking at it, it never works. Well, because people never th- try to make it work. A couple people have, but again, not recommending it.
0: So the uh, champion, auction champion you mentioned,
4: was that winning in a l- large-scale multi-league league? It wasn't to the extent of the main event where there's 400 teams. I think it's closer to 100, 150, so it's still fairly significant but it wasn't quite the feat of winning the 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 main event i I don't remember how exactly how many auction teams there are six or eight which puts it at 90 or 120 something in that range and it's growing the auctions are growing the high stakes auctions are growing so it was you know it was impressive but you know not not as impressive as have they done it Defeating, you know, 430 or 450 other teams.
0: Would you say that there's a a single category strategy that a Sweeney sort of uh, analogy in the pitching side with closers who have lots of saves, but poor side numbers in the decimals and strikeouts areas?
4: I, what I've seen is teams and I've done it myself where, you know, my, my ratios just don't do as well as they want. And I sort of pivot to that strategy in season um, I don't know that I've ever you know gone out and just targeted Rockies and Rangers pitchers to get wins and K's <clears throat> excuse me, and then you know get your Joe Nathans and your your dirt cheap closers. I, I suppose it's there. Um, but I don't I haven't seen people doing it, which is sort of doesn't mean it hasn't happened, but um, yeah it go yeah, go into a strategy and just get yeah wins in Ks and K's and saves and forget ratios. It might work because you don't have to spend all your assets on pitching. That way, of course, you know, the corollary, even the corollary to the Lima plan was, you know, you better hit on your offense. Right. So if you're doing this, if you're spending less on your starting pitching, you better hit on your offense because you're going to need all the points you can get.
0: Yeah. In general, those those extreme kind of approaches, they're interesting to theorize about, but executing them is uh, is certainly not as easy as as it is to just say, well, as you said, my plan is to punt saves. You better know what you're doing with the with the forty dollars that you had planned uh, that most people plan on using in those leagues to acquire saves, and not just think, well, I'll just spread it around in some way. You need, really need to have some kind of focus,
4: right? And I think again, that's where why I think the the general feeling is they don't work is because the people that try them. Aren't doing it properly, and that, you know there's there's a huge it's not that it, there's a huge margin of error, or some sorry small margin of error. Right. Um, when you do these things, you know, like I mentioned before, I'd much rather be able to, you know, manage all ten categories up and down, to affect the most points, than you know just to sort of let my team play, which is sort of what you have to do in these in these in these things. There's nothing you can do. You're you're not going to worry about ratios. So you know maybe you just Get every single pitcher that stinks on your roster, but that's not really managing the categories. Um, you know, you're trying to get what you expected to get in the beginning. So it's uh would not would not recommend it. And uh, but that's what some of you know. It's some of us have play a few different leagues, you know, that's what they're for, as opposed to experiment. And uh, I may actually put this one in my back pocket to get the all the Rangers and all the Rockies. Uh, maybe next year, you know, if we do this. Slugging for Jude thing again, or, 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 you know, one of these industry leagues where they're designed to experiment a bit. That's an interesting little uh, trial, trial, ex- trial team to put together.
0: Well, now I wish we'd come up with the uh, conversation six weeks ago so you could have tried it because now you're making me interested in it as well. Uh, um, uh, let's, let's put this in the memory vault for next year and uh, <laughs> hopefully pull it out at that time and, and see about on a, a, all Rangers and Rockies uh, pitching lineup or Phillies, I guess, for that matter, uh, and and see if it could possibly work. It'd be real interesting. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Todd, thanks very much. I know you have to run off to your last uh, NFBC auction, so I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, we'll definitely catch up with you again next Friday.
4: And as much as I've enjoyed being on the road, it's going to be great to talk to you from my desk for a change.
0: And, uh, of course, we'll have uh, some actual baseball with the regular season starting this weekend. Uh, so we'll have a, a, a week's worth of games that we can talk about and find that guy who hit uh, five home runs in the first week and how everybody's uh, rushing to fab him and so forth and, and how all that stuff works. So uh, talk to you again Friday. Todd, thanks.
4: Excellent. See you soon, Patrick.
0: Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, MastersBall.com, Ron Chandler's ChandlerPark.com. Of course, ESPN, as you heard, a big hand in the projections there. Uh, Wherever Todd Zola is, you should be too. When we come back, we'll have Master Notes with Ron Chandler coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. Back. shoulders just drugs. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentary. It's Master Notes, a weekly comment on baseball and fantasy baseball. And with a look at the fantasy baseball demographic, here's BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler.
3: If you are listening to this podcast, I can probably guess about your demographics odds are you've been playing fantasy baseball for at least 10 years probably longer odds are you're over 40 maybe 35 but more likely well into your 40s and possibly even your 50s and 60s odds are you are fully invested into your way of playing fantasy baseball I could be wrong about any of those three demos but I'm willing to bet most of you do fall into that group I'm part of that group so is Patrick and pretty much every voice you've ever heard at Baseball HQ Radio. Many of us grew up with this industry. I was there pretty close to the beginning. Been through a lot, seen a lot. After 30 years, I also know what I like. You probably do too. Sometimes we try new things, but we always seem to fall back on the way we like to play the game. That's not to say that things haven't changed over time. For, for some of us, we've seen 4x4 four four become 5x5, five We've seen the gradual loosening of roster restrictions. (laughs) How many of us remember those leagues where we couldn't replace a player unless he was DL'd or demoted? Rules have changed around us, and we've often had to adjust, willingly or unwillingly. These new daily games, frankly, I'm not a huge fan. I've played them, won a few bucks, gave some of it back, they're highly engaging. But it's not the game that I call fantasy. Still a good game, particularly if you're into that sort of thing. But the demographics. I'm going to guess that most of you don't play Daily Fantasy. I could be wrong. We recently completed a seven-city conference tour, you know, the first pitch forums. Retard Zola gave a talk on the daily games. He started each session by asking the attendees who among them already plays the game. Only a sparse few raised their hands. That surprised me a bit. Then he asked how many are thinking about trying Daily Fantasy. Even fewer hands. People who drop 40 or 50 bucks to go to these events fall into our demographic, which is why I'm taking the leap that you don't play Daily Fantasy. You should. I know. I'm asking you to try something that is significantly different from the way that you've been playing fantasy baseball for 10, maybe more than 20 years is not something anyone should consider an easy task. I know that I love the formats that I love. I know that I kept using the Lima plan for years beyond its expiration date. It was a comfortable place for me. But, our demographic? Well, it's aging out, and that is reality. We are getting older, and fewer and fewer new players are engaging in the six-month grind of full-season fantasy baseball. Rolling Stone just read an article about how a longtime fantasy player was unable to find replacements for owners that dropped out. Maybe some of you have had the same experience. Well, why hack it out for six months when you could just play tonight? Not my perspective, but those are the people who are driving the growth in the industry now. These new games are the future. and Decisions at very high levels are going to alter our definition of normal very, very soon. I'm not an alarmist. Those who've been reading me for many years know that I have a pulse on the industry and a track record of accuracy that goes far beyond telling you what players to draft. The daily games And all shorter run formats are what the majority of the market will be playing ten years from now. Five years from now. Maybe sooner. I've seen this coming for a while. That's one of the reasons I launched my monthly games last year. Yeah, that's a quick non-invasive plug for ChandlerPark.com, but there is a reason that site exists. We can't keep our heads in the sand and just assume that our status quo will continue forever. I want you to keep your eyes open and watch. Keep tabs on every change you see, every website redesign, every information service that starts shifting its content into areas you're not interested in, every price increase that seems disproportionate to the level of service, every part of your own experience that you take for granted. Don't. Try something new just once. Because change is coming soon, I guarantee it, and our demographic might not be big enough to stop it. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler for BaseballHQ.com.
0: Ron Chandler is the founder of BaseballHQ.com and a member of the Master Notes rotation here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 3rd. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 14 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I want to thank our regular guests for the Friday edition of the show, starting with Todd Zola. Always a pleasure to talk with Todd, always learn a lot also want to thank our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson, and our Master Notes commentator was BaseballHQ.com founder Ron Chandler. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can check out BaseballHQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8-star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday with the Fantasy Baseball Zen Master. It's Laura Michaels on the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long.